Let's go through every single package installed with a Linux install image. I'm going through the software included with Slackware, but these are all open source applications and libraries, so whether you're running Slackware like me, or Fedora, Debian, BSD, or even Mac or Windows, you can probably download, install, and try these on your computer. So chances are, you'll be able to learn something from this podcast. Let's get started. The first application on today's list is one near and dear to my heart because it really is a very good application. It is simply called KScreen. And if you think that sounds like a configuration management panel for your screen, for your monitor, then you have the right of it. That is exactly what it is. So if I go to slash var slash log slash packages slash kscreen dash, okay, 523.5. Kscreen is the new screen management software for KDE Plasma workspaces, which tries to be as magic and automatic as possible for users with basic needs and easy to configure for those who want special setups. What does this look like in terms of packaging? Uh, it looks like the deliverables are some Qt5 plugins in the form specifically of KCMS, or KCMs, uh, the KCMKScreen.so, and then a KDEDKScreen.so, and a Plasma applet for KScreen, some QML files, that's interesting. Yeah, quite a few uh, QML files, actually. I should look at those. That 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 could be interesting to look at. KCMKScreen.desktop, that's the launcher for it. That's the KServices 5 um, in user share. And that's about it, it looks like. I mean, there's more, but th that's the stuff that's interesting. So how do you get to KScreen? Well, we saw a, 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 case, a KCM module in there. So if you remember, case, KCM are the KDE config configuration modules modules or something like that is that what that stands for um so it's it's a it's a thing that you can launch but then it can also be embedded into other applications and and the one that we've seen uh, KCM being used for i think most of all i bet you think i'm going to say contact but um actually i was going to say settings system settings so i could just go to system settings or i could just launch my k menu type in the word K screen and it comes up sort of within the system settings but it takes you straight to that to that module this is a um I mean, this is the classic screen that you would expect to be present on on your operating system when you need to plug your computer into a monitor and 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 then configure how that monitor reacts to or interprets or how your computer interprets that that monitor so uh right now I'm a I guess I'm a simple person because I have one monitor. People I talk to sometimes assume, I guess because I use computers a lot, that I have lots of monitors. And they ask, oh, do you have an, an array of monitors? Do you have a bunch of monitors mounted on your wall? Uh, no, I do not. I have one simple monitor that I didn't even have to purchase. It's it was a, it's a monitor that work sent me. So technically, this is my work monitor. Um, and that's the one monitor I have. Uh, I do, I have a another, technically another monitor in a closet for when I need to, like, see, you know, actually see a screen on, like, a Raspberry Pi or something like that. And that was just one of those things that people were going to throw out, and so I grabbed. But my, my primary screen is just the one screen. So I actually don't use K-Screen that often. But I have used it often in the past, and then I still use it now, like when I take 
a computer out to you know from my office to the to the the lounge the living room um if i plug it into like the the tv screen on the wall so that you know more than one person can play a video game or something like that then uh, it's k-screen that i use and and that that's what made me fall in love with with k-screen or or rather i should say the thing that made me fall in love with k-screen is that every time i personally use it this is not a guarantee um but every time i have used it it's it's worked it has done what i expect it to do and that is such a wonderful feeling i mean that that's how you fall in love with an application it is as simple as that k screen does what you expect it to do when when you use it you plug in your computer to a, a secondary screen or to you know in, into a another screen or into a different screen whatever you you have to go and configure it for whatever reason you want your screen to be mirrored you don't want it to be mirrored you want it to you want your desktop to be split across two screens you want to rotate the image you want to change the resolution whatever it is you go to k screen and there's all the selections they're really really obvious when you change the resolution it prompts you it, it offers to fall back to the original resolution just in case, you know, after a timeout, just in case it has now become, for whatever reason, inaccessible to you. So it's got that smart fallback. It 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 recognizes and and shows you the layout of 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 the screens that you've plugged into, so you can rearrange. You you want your primary desktop over here, and this to be your secondary desktop window. All that stuff is available in K Screen, and it it just works exactly as you want it to work i'm not again i'm not saying that it will never fail you i mean computers are complex things i i imagine that getting the the displays correct is very difficult but kde k-screen it's a beautiful little project and it it's just it's a pleasure to use and i think what makes it so nice is that it it is exactly what it needs to be. Uh, you know, in a way, that's weird praise to say that this application is just so great because it is because it, it does its job. But honestly, I can't. I don't know that many people on other operating systems who feel that great about the screen the screen configuration uh, setup setup application. Now, I'm not saying that people go around grumbling about it, but I also believe that a lot of people don't use it that often. And so, and maybe that's the problem, to be fair, like, to be, to be generous, maybe that's the problem. People just don't use it often enough, and so when they go to a technical conference, which, believe you me, is the primary test for these applications, when they do that, they look like they've never used a computer before, they're getting the configuration wrong, they, they don't know how to mirror the display, they mirror it and the resolution's wrong. All the problems that you could possibly have. For me, for with K-Screen, that doesn't happen. It's a beautiful experience. I have been to lots of conferences, I mean, not, not in the past couple of years, but, but believe me, before that, I was actually a person who went to conferences, and I will be again, and I've never ever given a second thought to plugging my Linux laptop into any given um, uh, projector or, or secondary screen. I'll do it right before, I mean, look, everyone, everyone, if, if you give me the chance to test it, I will definitely test it in advance. But I have no hesitation in just going up to give my talk and, and seeing if my laptop works with their equipment, because I don't even want to say nine times out of ten. Like, I can't remember the last time I've had an issue with it. Uh, and, and some of that isn't 
just K screen, obviously, like some of that is is lower level code. And, and, you know, K screen is obviously just the thing allowing me to configure my preferences. But when you're up there, people are looking at you, people are waiting for the screen to come to life. It's really nice to have an interface that is clear, simple, and reliable. And that's what K-Screen is. Now let's talk about K-Screen Lock. And honestly, this is another great application. K-Screen Lock is a very nice and reliable locking mechanism for your screen. So when you walk away from your computer, you want to, you know, we used to call them screen savers. Now they're just, they're just screen locks. They make sure that people can't get to the the GUI interface. They can't get past this screen lock. Their their visual control over a computer, they're they're locked out. There's nothing magical about this. It's not like you've actually like encrypted your session or something like that. I mean it's it's a it's a visual lock that simply makes input and and interpretation of output impossible. And it's great. That's a that's a very, very functional mechanism. And I know that, you know, everyone has a story or has heard the story of someone who was at work at at their programming job and they walked away from their computer without locking their screen and they came back and, you know, name, name funny Linux related office prank, whatever it might be. I took a screenshot of their, their screen and, and did something and, and they couldn't figure out why their mouse wasn't moving or I, you know, whatever. Like we've all heard those stories. Maybe some of us, I've heard those stories anyway. So obviously like ever since I've ever worked in an, in an office, in a tech office, well, in an office with a computer, I think, I mean, if I get up from a computer and it's my computer, then I lock the screen. That's obvious. Now, the, the problem has been in the past, and this is a very slight problem, but in the past I have used Linux boxes, and they're not ones that I've configured and that I had any control over, but I would notice sometimes that, like, the screen would, would blank or, or, you know, an image would come up on the screen, but sort of like if you, like if you, you could not, not exactly get around the image, but, but you could sometimes see flickers of what was behind that image. And that always really bugged me. And I, I don't remember what screen locking software it was, but it was, I can name the system that it was on. I'm not going to because I don't want to like cast aspersions. I don't want to pretend like I'm blaming this distribution and that screen locking application because I mean, honestly, I don't remember the combination correctly. So I remember the system that it was on. I don't exactly even remember the problem. I just remember having like this thing in the back of my head saying a screen locking application should not do the thing that it was doing. And I, again, I don't exactly remember what it was doing, but it was like flickering or something under cer- certain circumstances. And I just felt like it was wrong because it should, there should be no question, right? The screen lock should come on and that should be it. And I know in real life, when a screen lock is down, there's nothing like literally behind it. But yeah, the curtain should fall and that should be impervious until until you have typed in the correct password. K-Screen does that. It, when, when you activate K-Screen, no, not K-Screen, K-Screen lock, display goes uh, blank or whatever, it goes to a little login window, and that's the extent of it. Like, there's no, there's not really any variation there. I mean, there is. You can configure what you can do through the lock screen, but that, I mean, that's configuration, right? It's like, in terms of, like, performance and, again, reliability, I, I feel very good about K-Screen lock. I feel like that that is a very functional screen locking mechanism, and I would, I, I absolutely don't, I wouldn't hesitate to use it. Now, again, 
past couple of years, I actually haven't been using K-screen lock or any screen locking mechanism because it's just not necessary. I, there, there's no one within the physical space that is going to uh, mess with my computer, so it's not a problem. But I do feel very good about K-screen lock. I use it regularly outside of the house, and it, it, it works really, really well. Once again, you can get to K-Screen Lock as a KCM uh, like module, so you can just type in K-Screen and you'll K-Screen Lock, I think, uh, and it brings it up. Or you can go to System Settings and go to Workspace Behavior and find the Screen Locking uh, little configuration panel. And there are a couple of different options. You can lock the screen automatically after some number of minutes, or you can um, lock it after awakening from sleep so that, you know, even if your computer is asleep and then someone wakes it up, they all they get is that was that was it actually that was it it was a k it was not k screen lock it was a some kind of locking screen locking application and when you woke up the computer then you would for just for a couple of you know probably microseconds like you would see the screen without the lock and i never I, I i don't believe it was an active screen i think it was just like the screen hadn't been repainted yet maybe by 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 the locking uh application but yeah that that used to annoy me so much anyway um allow and that wasn't again that was not k screen lock it was some other locking um application that i i honestly do not remember which one okay allow unlocking without password for some odd seconds after it it after the the curtain falls as it were uh you can map it to a keyboard shortcut which is what i would do at work um just you know control alt control alt l or or whatever you you want uh to to cause the 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 locking mechanism to occur um and then you have lots of options for what it looks like like what what which which screen do you want to appear what what image do you want to appear and uh what options do you want on there so for instance do you want uh the clock to appear do you want the media controls to appear or not a little bit of control over what you see when the lock screen comes up and that's it so it, it saves you the trouble of having to like log out of your session which is great and it works which is really great next up is k service or is it k services plural no, just K-Service. Okay, uh, K-Service is the component of the Plasma desktop that, well, here. K-Service provides a plugin framework for handling desktop services. Services can be applications or libraries. They can be bound to MIME types or handled by application-specific code. So this actually includes some really important components that don't necessarily you don't really necessarily use all the time, so they kind of fall out of sight, out of mind. But there are things like k-auto-start, which is the thing that ensures that, um, well, in system settings, there's a, a thing called background services. So if you go to system settings and go to startup and shutdown, there's auto-start and background services. Uh, as far as I know, these are controlled by k-services. I couldn't point you to the code to prove that, but um, I, I believe that's correct. So K Auto Start, K Mime Type Trader, K Dbus Service Starter, K Service Action, uh, K Psycoca. So K Psycoca is the kind of the, the the really important one, and that is the system configuration cache. 
So that's system, psi, configuration, configuration, CO, cache, CA, K, psi, coca, or yeah, K, psi, coca, KDE, system, configuration, cache. It is the system that keeps binary versions of the information contained in all of your .desktop files. On Linux, or I should say on the free desktop, which could be on Linux, it could be on BSD, it could feasibly be on something else. So on the free desktop, there's a specification for a .desktop file, which is just a normal text file. There's nothing special about it except that it's formatted in a certain way, like meaning it contains some data reliably, but it is just a text file. You can create them yourself. It's really easy to do. So you can create these um, these .desktop files, and it, as long as you mark them executable, then they will represent themselves in, in as if though they were like applications. Really, that's that's the idea. So in your .desktop file, you can you can give it an icon. And when you specify what icon you want it to use, you're telling that file, the one that you are creating right then, how you want it to represent itself in the GUI. Uh, you can also define a like an executable that you want it to go find and launch for you, and so on. And, and you might think, well, this just sounds like a shell script. And in a way, you're right. It is that it, it it is a lot like a shell script. But the the differentiation is that a shell script is a shell script, and and it is a it could be a lot of different things. A .dot desktop file is a relatively narrowly defined entity. It is a .dot desktop file. It exists only to create a launcher. That's what its job is. It's not going to be the. It's you're not going to use a .dot desktop file to parse a. Uh, a, f a list of, um, you know, to parse your lo your server logs. That's just not what a .desktop file does. Now, you could use a .desktop file to launch something that would then parse your, your server logs, but in other words, the, the text file that you create and, and then call .desktop, if it is a valid .desktop file, it contains, I don't know, about, what is it, 12 lines maybe? Square bracket desktop space entry close square bracket encoding equals UTF-8 name equals foo generic name equals foo comment equals uh, foo application to um, you know demonstrate a widget exec that's e x e c as in executable equals slash you know whatever user slash bin slash foo icon equals, I don't know, slash user, slash share, slash icon, slash oxygen, slash 64x64, slash, well, let's do, like, let's pretend like it's, like, more like 256x256, slash categories, slash applications, dash games, dot png. Terminal equals false. This isn't going to run in the terminal. Type equals application. Categories equals uh, you know, gaming, I guess, or, or maybe it's called games, I don't know, I'd have to look up the, the categories. All of this is defined by the free desktop specification. So you, you can go to the, um, the desktop entry specification, which I will actually include in the show notes, and, and read the specification. It's not, it's not like a 164-page specification, you know, it's a, it's a really, it is long, but it, it is manageable and pretty clear, um, 
I mean, you know, it's a specification, so it's, it's, it isn't like a tutorial on how to make one, but it tells you what the valid entries are. What I've just given you is the, the minimal, or maybe not minimal, but almost minimal. I think it's the minimal, um, number of, uh, uh the, the minimal content for a, a valid .desktop file that would launch an imaginary application called foo located in user bin. And once you mark that desktop executable, then it follows through on your command. For instance, it looks, or parts of your command, it looks for the icon file that you've told it you want it to use, and it changes its icon to that icon. It's very cool. And, and then you have this thing. It looks like an application, and you could put it on your desktop. You could put it in dot uh, local slash share, or, you know, tilde slash dot local slash share slash applications, and then it would show up in your personal application menu. But it doesn't have to be an executable application. It could be something like, um, like a, you know, a, a, a daemon that's gonna, a demon daemon that's gonna run in the background, uh, and, and you could put it in some appropriate directory, which I don't know off the top of my head, and, and launch it through the KDE background services or the auto start f function, uh, in the KDE system settings. And, and, and once again, you now have like this sort of, uh, central designator for that service. It, it defines the service that you want KDE to be able to use. That's a .desktop file. KSIKOKA looks at you the desktop files on your computer and caches it. Makes, makes a, it makes a binary uh, copy of all that information. And it does that because it's just a weird fact of how computing and parsing works that a binary file is a lot faster than plain text. I don't like that reality either. I love plain text. Linux is built on plain text. You don't really want to lose plain text, but the reality, apparently, and, and this is from a lot of people who are a lot better at this stuff than, than certainly me, uh, is that the binary uh, data is just, it's quicker because you can tell you can tell your application exactly what, you know, where the thing is because it's a binary. So, KSIKOKA is a cache for your system configuration. And so when your computer needs to know something about applications and services, K services, uh, running on your, on your uh, desktop, on your Plasma desktop, it invokes, you know, it looks at the KSIKOKA data. Now, you can force KSIKOKA, I mean, KSIKOKA generally builds, or rather, um runs on its own after you install something through normal channels. But, I mean, one of the reasons, or one of the, the ways that I use .desktop files, for instance, is when I'm installing something that isn't supported through a, you know, a normal channel. And, and so, you know, if I just drop, I don't know, some random application in slash opt, and then I make a desktop, a desktop file for it and throw it into my dot local slash share slash applications, then in theory, it should instantly appear in my K menu. But if for some reason it doesn't, then you can use the command K build coca 5 to sort of force your, your system to scan through those desktop files again and wrap it all up, or not wrap it all up, but like sort of, you know, copy it over into a binary, uh, like the cache. So that's, that's why Psycoca is so important. And, and again, in case you've forgotten how we got here, because I almost did, KSICOCA is a uh, part of the K service package. Uh, not, not K build Psycoca. That is a part of a separate package, which I, I kind of feel like I might have already talked about previously, like in a previous episode, but I can't find it on, on the homepage. So I guess I must not have. But, um, yeah, like K Psy, K Psycoca, 
KSI Coca entry, KSI Coca type. Uh, those are all uh, K services within the KDE Framework 5, within that K service package. And then, of course, there's a bunch of header files and some CMake files. So that's this is the, the infrastructure for just kind of interacting with the stuff that you interact with on your computer. And and I, by stuff, I guess I mean the, the, the desktop part. I mean, not really the desktop, but from a user's perspective who doesn't really think about this stuff too hard, like there's the stuff that the computer has, and then there's the stuff that you have. Your, your stuff are your vacation photos and your, your great novel that you're writing and all your music and, you know, the things that you've produced on the computer, the, your data. And then there's that other stuff, you know, like the applications and and um, the thing that reminds you to uh, go get new, more, more coffee in an hour. All those little services and, and widgets and utilities, K-Service is the thing that helps you interact and manage and and helps them respond to you quickly. I think it's probably time for coffee, actually, now that I'm mentioning a widget, a theoretical widget that tells you to go get coffee. Well, actually, of course, it doesn't have to be theoretical. We, we've covered K-Alarm in previous episode. But anyway, let's go get coffee. We'll come back, take some listener email, probably talk about some more applications, and then wrap it up. <laughs> I'm back with coffee. I hope you have coffee. I've got also listener feedback, so let's go through some of that. Um, I'm going sort of in reverse order of receipt, actually, just because that's how I've got this uh, the K-mail um, configured. So uh, I guess most recently, I've gotten an email from Lost in Bronx. He says, I can confirm. I, I would try to do my best Lost in Bronx impression, but I'm afraid... Um, I'm probably not very good at that. I can confirm that DeepGeek and I are still doing the shared server thing. I still post to my Gopher site, mirroring uh, Lost in Bronx's audio diary episodes over there in Speaks format. I doubt anyone has ever downloaded one other than me to test it, but whatever. Also, I have to say that I really like the coffee reviews. These are blends I'll never get to try, but it's still nice to hear. Regarding web services, I have the feeling we are on the edge of change on that front. Now that the NFT bubble has burst, the so-called Web 3.0 promise might start to gain some traction with various services being offered that are A, blockchain-based, B, actually not scams, C, give ownership of code, data, and maybe even financial uh, finance back to users, and then D, are easy to implement and use. Later companies will begin to exert their influence and ownership over these types of services, developing new stuff that becomes massively popular, leading people once again to walled gardens. Things happen in cycles. So that this is interesting to me. The, so this is Klaatu now. Um, this is interesting to me because I had never heard that that was Web 3.0's promise. I, I, the only chatter I have heard about Web 3.0 is associated as Lost in Bronx has said, with silly, th- silly things like NFT. So I've had a very, and, and yeah, like blockchain or not blockchain, because I don't want to throw blockchain under the bus. Um, but like cryptocurrency, and I, I actually don't want to throw cryptocurrency under the bus necessarily. The, the, there are lots of great 
I guess actually I will throw cryptocurrency under the bus, um, but only in implementation. The the concept to me, and and if this is Web 3.0, then first of all it's news to me. But but second of all, then 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 great, it's Web 3.0. But the the concept of of a lot of these things for me is really really appealing, and and I'm confident because I know Lost in Bronx that we're probably talking the same language here. Um, and it's just fascinating to me that 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 this this might be Web 3.0. Um, but the concept to, to, for me would be as he, as he says, or maybe as he's saying, I think this is what he's saying. But but an an inter an an interconnected network. We could call it something catchy, like I don't know, inter interconnet. No, inter internet. That sounds catchy. So some some imaginary thing called an internet that would um that that people would access through clients on their computer. And all of these clients would be sort of programmed to optionally converge with one another at the user's own preference so that they could, you know, sort of share back and forth whatever they wanted to share. And we've obviously seen this kind of thing happen, right? I mean, since Identica, at least, where people can run their own services. And this is, I mean, this is exactly what his email is really responding to, I think. But, well, it is for sure. Um, and if you haven't heard the, my episode about services, like cloud services, essentially, go listen to that at some point if if you want, because it's relevant to this. But the concept that you would run an application that we'll call a service, because that's essentially what it is, but it, it's also a client. Um, but this service on your computer that can then hook into some greater mesh where people are making data available. That's a powerful thing because these clients could be open source. I mean, people could also run non-open source versions of the clients. That's fine. But the, the clients are open source. The data is out there available and you can hook in from whatever, in whatever way you want. And we see people doing this with Mastodon right now. We've seen it with, like I said, Identica. We've seen it uh, with um, GNUnet. We've seen it with a, a bunch of different projects that are, that are just clamoring around this idea What's that one? P2P.chat, I think. Um, uh, and and heck, Nextcloud itself, right? I mean, Nextcloud is maybe even the in a in a way maybe that's the, the the exact example I'm looking for. I mean, it's not exactly where it wants to be yet, I don't think. But I mean, Nextcloud, the chat application. I mean, it's it's peer to peer video or WebRTC, you know. And, but there's no there's not you don't need that service out there on someone else's computer to talk to someone else. You just need a connection point, and 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 that can be peer to peer, and and that's huge. I mean, that's a big big deal. I mean, it it is it is really less an internet arguably, and more of a mesh network, which I am 100%, I mean, I, d don't get me wrong, I understand the difference, and I know that the internet, like if we're talking about internet infrastructure, that sort of thing, I get it, there's a physical layer here that, that someone has to own and maintain, like, I totally understand that, although, I mean, look, I mean, how long into the future are we looking here, because, because, I mean, there, there doesn't have to be a physical infrastructure all the time, right? I mean, we, we can construct a mesh that could encircle the whole globe, like, eventually, like it could be a wireless system, you know. So anyway, um, it's important for people to be able to run their own services that connect with other people running their own services without the the intermediary being 
being there between them. Why? Well, because the intermediary, as we have seen, tends to get, let's charitably say, greedy, um, or more accurately, possibly abusive. That's what happens. I mean, as as Lost in Bronx, I, I believe, is, is alluding there in his last paragraph, the, the corporations eventually catch on that the the free thing that they were offering to everybody is actually costing them money, and what would it be like if we instead just kept farming people's personal data and and just make it available to whoever gives us enough money, or, you know, whatever, whatever nefarious or, or mildly um, unsavory deed you are, are afraid of. So the ability to run your own services and hook into other people's services um, with, with with consent on both sides, really, really important. And the idea that there can be a a currency of some sort that that doesn't rely on scarcity definitely, definitely intrigues me. And and that's I think the the greatest weak link in the whole cryptocurrency question because I, I i when i first was introduced to the concept of cryptocurrency like my interest in it was that it is that that it was a an abstraction or i thought it was an abstraction of, of money and it turns out that it is not an abstraction of money it is just money it's mining for for diamonds and gold and other things except you're doing it digitally and and it's not you know it's, you're just mining for numbers that that does not appeal to me um some other system alternate system that would place value on something like i don't know time and effort possibly uh, to barter between people on the on the uh, the intermesh or whatever we're building here uh, would be very cool to me. So all of that is really, really exciting. Now, I don't know how much of that is just me. I don't know how much of that is actually what Web 3.0 is talking about. I, I thought, honestly, Web 3.0 was just um, cryptocurrency, um, blockchain vagarity, and uh, yeah, like NFTs. Like that's, that's all I knew about Web 3.0. So I don't know. Look, after Web 2.0 went so, went so sour, I'm I, I'm a little bit hesitant to increment any further. And as I've as I've as I've often said, I'm I'm kind of ready to just do a sidestep. Uh, I mean, not ready enough, I guess, because I'm still on the internet. It's not like I live on Gemini or or Gopher, but um, yeah, I'm I'm I'm. I'm, I'm biding my time, uh, and I, I do think something, as Lost in Bronx says, I think something is, something's brewing, and I'm excited about it. Here's another email. It's from Matthias. Matthias has a really interesting email, um, sort of a hypothetical, or I guess it's not a hypothetical. So he says, uh, the other day I asked myself how people would live in the shell back in the old days. So imagine this. I sat in front of my box and was trying to figure which hex editor might be available for it. I ended up installing a program named Hexer, H-E-X-E-R, after I did a web search for something like Debian hex editor. Apt cache search hex got me nowhere because there were uh, too many results. Now, assume it's 1995 and some poor soul sits in front of a terminal without a GUI, a browser, or a web search, how would that person ask the machine, hey computer, which hex editor do you provide or, or can I get for you in one way or another? That's his question. That's the question. And that's a great question. And I think, as as is often the case, I, I think there's there's certainly a danger here of going to like the extremes. And in you know, in like everyday life, how often do you find yourself in front of a computer without a GUI, with no way to to query the internet for a specific tool? It doesn't happen often. So 
that's why I guess he places this back in time, back in 1995. What? How? How would you do it back in 1995? But I mean, my my head does go to the worst case scenario. Well, how would I do that if I was out in the middle of the desert, had a computer, I wanted to, I don't know, save battery or something, or it was a low powered computer. I don't have a GUI, and I need to edit a edit a something or another, and I need I need to know how to get that. Like, how do you do that? What 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 resources does Linux provide for that eventuality? And and the only thing that I could think of really were well are, are two things I guess. So one is um, the instruction manual. I mean, really, like I think the world has largely gotten away from documentation. Not not I don't know that that documentation has actually ever been all that great. But you know, so so it's not like you can go back and say, oh, look at all the, look at how great everything was was documented and and explained. Like quite the contrary, I usually find older manuals for things to be pretty rough around the edges. But and by rough by around the edges, I mean they I structurally they they don't work for me like they they introduce concepts without applying uh, without revealing the context or they 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 give a bunch of context but are vague about the specifics of how to actually solve the thing or how the thing applies to the situation um and then usually the the voice of the article is sort of a very sort of staunchy traditional kind of like business speak over verbose in a passive voice uh, in in the future tense it, you know like it just goes on and on so i i don't i don't i don't tend to love old documentation i think documentation writing in some places has improved opensource.com for instance typically has great documentation and um I don't know who's writing that stuff over there, but boy, one of those writers is really, really good. Um, and so documentation can improve sometimes, uh, and and it has improved sometimes. But then, then again, you know, just open a terminal and type in, I don't know, man, um, well, I, I'm not going to pick on a specific application now because I realize if I do that, I'm going to hear from the from the uh, developer about why I was being mean about their documentation and, and instead of fixing their documentation, which is a fair point. Um, so yeah, you know, sometimes you'll, you'll come across those, those things that just aren't very helpful. And I think that's a problem. So anyway, what I'm thinking is that, yeah, technically maybe a user manual, right? You would, you, you'd, you'd in theory get a user manual. There'd be a list of all the different applications that are conceivably available or, or that are supported by your your distribution. Now look, you're running Debian. Debian's great. All I'm saying is that on Slackware, you get a you get the distribution. You get the entire distribution of Slackware when you install Slackware. Like that is the distribution. And if you are looking for a hex editor, there's probably one there. If you're looking for a paint program, there's probably one there. I mean, that is the supported operating system. And so yes, there actually is documentation. Like it is all there on Slackware. So that's something to consider is that philosophically, I think Slackware, I mean, look, this is a strongly biased show towards Slackware. We're all aware of this. Um, but yeah, I think I think saying, well, you could fall back on, on offline documentation is is a thing that we should be able to say in the Linux world. That's what we should be able to say. Now, how imperative is that? I don't know, because like I say, in real life, how many of us actually find ourselves in this situation? But philosophically, we should be able to say, look, 
If you need help, you're going to find it on offline documentation. It's going to explain everything to you. Okay, so that's sort of one idea about sort of documentation. The other concept, the other, the other thing that came to my mind, well, actually, I guess it's related, is a better help system. <laughs> like, we need a better help system on Linux. And I, I actually did, I had started a little um, help system called Shelp. Uh, so, like, Shell, help for a shell, shelp. Uh, it's a help file for a POSIX system, and um, I don't remember how far I got along on this thing. It's it's gitlab.com slash slackermedia slash shelp, and it is a um, a help system that, that launches in the GNU info system, which is a hyper-linkable documentation system. It's, it's really actually quite nice. I'm pretty sure I've talked about it already on this show. Uh, and and the goal was that if someone typed the word help in a terminal, then instead of getting that useless sort of like built-in bash help file that just like lists just the built-in commands of bash or whatever it does, you'd actually get something friendly. And I, I really strongly, strongly feel like that should be a thing. It pains me that the word help on most Linux systems is so utterly useful. I really, really, it just, it pains me. Like, you type in help, and it tells you what version of bash you're running, and it gives you, I don't know, what is this, like 50, two columns, so about a hundred different commands that are built into bash. And that's all you get from the word help. That should not be the case. That That is, that is namespace squatting, and I do not appreciate it. That should not be happening. I mean, the same thing goes for install. I've, I've complained about this before. The install command, I mean, not that it has anything to do with what we're talking about here, but the install command should be a universally reserved keyword that, that, is sim-linked to your package manager, or that at least tells you what your package manager is, or something. It should not just be a slightly more complex version of the copy command, which is what it is. It's just, it, it, I don't like that. I, like, the, the very obvious words that we should be encouraging people to blindly type into a terminal are, are occupied. Why, why are we doing that? So anyway, so how could you find your hex editor? That's the real question. So if you can't find it through a, a mythical 200, 600-page user manual, and you can't find it uh, in a help system, because there apparently is no help system, and, and you've done an apt cache search, you've done maybe an apropos... What happens if I type in apropos hex? Yeah, that's pretty rough, even on Slackware, to be honest. Uh, I've got probably a 100 results of... Um, ISO 8, yeah, all the different ISO character sets. Um, I've got, well, there's hex chat, which is an IRC client. Um, here's, yeah, that's about it. I, I don't see, I don't actually see the hex editors listed here. So that's not great. That, that's not, I, maybe I'm just overlooking it, but there, I mean, that's also a pro, here's hex dump. Yeah, I mean, and even if I am, even if it is being listed here and I'm just overlooking it, I think to Matthias's point, that's a problem too. Like if, if you're, if you type in, you know, what can I use for hex editing and you get 100 or 200 or 300 results, then, then basically you've gotten no results because you're not going to look through all that. So what do we need? Like a tagging system? Um, a, a, again, like a cataloging system? Would it be cool to have a distributed sort of automatically updating or maybe not automatically updating i mean this is funny because now i'm talking again c distributed that's going to be the internet again so how would we get that um 
I mean, the internet currently is, that's, that's the way that we find out about stuff. And I, I cannot imagine having started on Linux back in the 90s, like some of you did, you brave souls, um, or, or even the early, early 2000s. Like, I, I honestly cannot imagine how that would, I would have had to find somebody else to help me, like, like another real life human. And I don't know that I would have done that at that time. Maybe I would now, but at that, that time in my life, I don't think I'd have done that. I I think I would have just settled for a suboptimal. Maybe not. Linux was pretty addictive. It is pretty addictive. So maybe, maybe I would have actually. Maybe that would have compelled me to go find somebody to help me. But yeah, the point is, like, yeah, how do you discover stuff on a on a Linux computer on a POSIX computer? And I think that's actually good enough. I think that's a good question right there. The obvious, obvious answer is always going to be Meh, the internet. But how could we optimize it so that that's not the only answer? And I think that's an important question to ask. I, I mean, obviously, I wish I had an answer. I wish I had like the solution. If I wish I'd, I wish I had something stashed away in a GitLab uh, repository that I could just pull up onto my screen and just say, "This is the thing that everyone's been looking for. I've had it waiting here all along." I, I don't. Um, but yeah, I think it is. I think it's a, a, an intriguing question. And if you have ideas, dear listener, let me know because I would love for this conversation conversation to potentially continue a little bit more beyond just just this interaction. Let's go for one more application. Uh, this is K Shaisin's show or Shaisin show. Yeah. K Shaisin show. And this is a mahjong like game that apparently is um I guess less uh, more strict in its its layout because I couldn't find other like mahjong there were a bunch of different layouts, but if I go to configure Shisenzo show, there are the the tile sets that you can use. There are there's the background that you can use, but the only layout is just this sort of big array of tiles, like two, four, six, eight, ten. 12, 14, 16, 18, something like 18 by 2, 4, 6, 8, 8 tiles. Uh, the goal is exactly the same as in K Mahjong, although I guess there's a time limit in this. I don't know if there was in Mahjong, I don't remember. But you select tiles that look the same, you select them, and then they go away. They disappear. Now, interestingly, in this, this is a little bit like one of those kind of, I don't know, bursting bubble games or whatever, where if you take a, if you take tiles from the bottom row, then the, the row falls, like it becomes lower, which changes things, because remember, you can only take uh, tiles from the edges. So when something something might open up because you're taking from the bottom, and then suddenly you have access to, to tiles because they're technically on an edge now that you didn't have before. So that's kind of an intriguing mechanic, I think. It's a pretty difficult game. I mean, it's a timed game, so you, you, you feel the pressure from the start, really, and and I don't know how much I love it, because it is just, it is a bunch of very, you know, similar looking tiles, or not similar looking, well, there are some that look really similar, uh, but it is, it's visually overwhelming, and, and you know that every moment that you're wasting looking for a match is a moment wasted as you, as you try to, um, Oh, that's not on the edge. And then the frustration, the, the constant frustration of clicking on a tile and realizing that it's not valid because you, you just, you're excited to see the, the, that the tile, to have found a matching tile, and so you click on it thinking, well, that's surely going to, 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 to count, but then it doesn't because it's like, oh, no, it's not on the edge. Um, and, and you can't take from like the bottom and the top either. It's, it's, it's either the bottom edge or the top edge. I don't think it's valid from a side if I, 
let me test that that oh it is okay so i can do it from the side as well okay that's cool so from all four edges that's nice i guess that makes it two times more easy i guess it's still a really hard game game and yeah it's a fun enough game i mean i i have not touched mahjong again since covering it on this on the show i don't feel like i'm gonna touch shaisen's show again after covering it on this show i don't i don't hate it i just it's not this is not that's not intriguing to me or it's not it's intriguing but it is not uh relaxing by any means and and those little desktop games i feel like i i play them more like when i just want to kind of relax for a moment and and that one does not relax me so i don't know how i feel about k shison's show show but i will say that the the application itself is as usual quite nice like i i just don't know if i'll ever have anything bad to say about a kde game i just think they're done so well and i love how they're using similar assets they a lot of them have the same themes they're scalable infinitely it's just such a nice it, it just works so well really really enjoying it to be honest so that's that's keishai shinjo show and i think that's where i'm going to end this episode thank you very much for listening i will talk to you next time Thanks for listening. My name's Klaatu. You can reach me anytime over email with feedback or comments, tips, or just to say hi. My email address is klaatu at slackermedia.info. You can also reach me on the Mastodon network, not klaatu, at mastodon.xyz. The show's intro and outro music is by Fat Chance Lester. You can find their music on bandcamp.com or on gnuworldorder.info in the archive you'll find a music directory containing the album from which this music has been extracted until next time thanks for listening and keep the source open Don't ask me questions. There isn't time.